Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Could we use a little more utopian thinking right now? Kristen Gotzi thinks so. She writes in her new book, Everyday Utopia, given the sudden social upheavals of the pandemic, the destabilizing effects of the climate crisis, and the growing prevalence of isolation and despair in communities across the globe, we are once again at a moment when utopian dreaming feels appropriate. It may even be necessary for our collective survival. Coming up on Forum, we'll look at the benefits of thinking utopically at a time when many of us can feel trapped in a doom loop and it's more natural to imagine a dystopian future than a utopian one. What's your utopia? Tell us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What comes to mind when you hear the word utopia, or when you're asked what an ideal way of living or state of being looks like? A communal living society, perhaps? Or an eco-village? Maybe you think of the communes of the 1960s. Depending on what is going on in the world, humanity has always looked to utopias for inspiration, writes Kristen Gotzi, author of Everyday Utopia, no matter the risk, no matter how long the record of disappointment and failure. This hour, we'll look at what past utopian experiments can teach us about creating positive change and the benefits of using utopian thinking in our daily lives and communities. And we want to hear from you. Have you ever tried a utopian experiment, big or small? What does utopia look like to you? Joining me now is Kristen R. Godsey, Chair and Professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to Forum, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you. So I'm struck by this notion of utopian thinking as risky. What what makes it risky or, or even dangerous? Well, I think what makes it risky and dangerous is a sort of fundamental aspect of human psychology, which is status quo bias. So we know from social psychology and behavioral economics that most of us are pretty risk averse and we don't like feeling regret. Regret is an emotion that we really dislike, and we try to avoid it as much as possible. 
And so when we have to make a decision about something in the future, there are two options. There's making a decision about something to do and there's doing nothing. And it turns out that if something turns out badly, something goes wrong, we're less likely to feel regret about a decision that we didn't make than we are about a decision that we did make. And so for most of us, dreaming about a different future, a better future, a more beautiful, more inclusive, more connected, happier, joyous future is risky because it means that we have a greater chance of feeling regret if things don't work out the way we wanted them to. So I sort of feel like there's this old saying, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And in my view, it's better to have dreamed of utopia and failed than never to have dreamed at all. Yeah. Are there also social consequences to thinking utopically as well? Oh, definitely. In in a society like the United States, where we are deeply pragmatic and we are kind of suspicious of wild dreamers, as long as those dreamers are talking about the social world. If, if you know, if dreamers are talking about wild schemes to make lots of money, then we think they're geniuses. But if they're talking about wild schemes for reimagining the way we organize our lives to make us more you know, connected and contented to reduce our carbon footprints, to deal with the crises of isolation and loneliness, to challenge structures that perpetuate inequality and discrimination, then you're kind of naive and unrealistic. So there's this interesting dichotomy between people who engage in what is sometimes called blue sky thinking in industry or in science or academia, basically in the corporate world where blue sky thinking is a way of coming up with strategies to make lots of money or create unicorn investments, find unicorn companies. But when we take this concept of blue sky thinking and we apply it to our lives and we apply it to our societies, then it becomes utopian. And the word utopian is used in a pejorative way and you're looked down upon. You're sort of, you're naive, you're unrealistic, mm -hmm. you're thinking you know, you get the, the the classic response is, oh, well, that's nice in theory, but it'll never work in practice. Yeah. I really like your point is that it's not so much that our utopian thinking has to be achieved as a goal could be that it can just guide us or orient us towards something. Exactly. I think that that's the value and purpose purpose of utopian thinking. You know, Oscar Wilde wrote that a map that doesn't contain utopia is not even worth worth glancing at. And what that means is that utopia has to be out there on the horizon. It doesn't mean that we're going to achieve it. In fact, I think some of the greatest failures of societies in the 20th century were societies that thought that they had achieved some sort of utopia. The idea of utopia is to strive towards it. The Uruguayan poet Eduardo Galeano talks about the ways in which the utopia is always on the horizon. And the closer you get to it, the further it moves away from you. And huh. you take a few more steps in the direction and then it recedes a few more steps. And he asks this wonderful question, what is the point of utopia? And he says, the point is to keep walking. We have to keep moving forward. And utopia is the lodestar that sort of guides us into the future rather than rooting us in some kind of doom loop of the present or even worse, imagining some golden age of the past. 
It's interesting because even the word utopia encapsulates this sort of apparent contradiction. Can you just talk quickly about Sir Thomas More, who I guess essentially invented the term? Yeah, he invented the term for this little book that he wrote in 1602. And I think it's really interesting to think about, no, sorry, 1602, that's Tommaso Campanella. 1516 is Thomas More's Utopia. Thomas More's Utopia was written in sort of the aftermath of the quote unquote, and this is a problematic word, but it's what it's called, the discoveries of the Americas, right, in 1492. And so, Thomas More used this little book to sort of reflect on what society could be like. And he coined the word utopia, playing on an interesting ambiguity in the Greek, because the way it's spelled with just the U could mean it means literally a no place. Utopia is a no place. But a homonym for utopia is eutopia, which means a good place. And I love the fact that there's that ambiguity. So this perfect place, this good place that we're all trying to get to doesn't exist. But that doesn't mean that it can't exist. And it doesn't mean that we should stop looking for it. We're talking with Kristen Godsey about utopia, and I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What does utopia mean to you? What comes to mind when you hear the word utopia? And if you've tried living in a utopia-inspired environment, tell us what that has been like. You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786. Well, Kristen, one of the areas that you'd like to see some utopian thinking applied (laughs) um, is to our private domestic lives. Why is that ripe for reimagining? Well, I think that there are these very future positive books out there, and a lot of them are thinking about changes, very utopian changes that we could make to the public sphere. But in my work and in my book, I really want to focus on the private. I really want to focus on our families and our friends and our communities, our neighbors, our colleagues, our, our, you know, um, the people that we meet, our weak ties, what social psychologists call the weak ties, the people that we see in the grocery store or we, you know, pass on our way to work when we're walking, if we're walking or taking public transportation. So for me, what I think is really important is that the COVID pandemic really showed that our model of the nuclear family, which consists of, you know, usually a romantic couple, which has children, and they provide exclusive biparental care for those children in a single family home surrounded by hordes of their own privately owned stuff. That model really kind of broke down during the pandemic. And people suddenly realized, whoa, this is not a great way to raise children. So they they rushed out and they formed things like pandemic pods to do homeschooling and childcare. They engaged in mutual aid experiments in order to help their neighbors go grocery shopping. There were all sorts of ways in which people became extremely creative and expanded their definition of kin outside of what we call consanguineous ties, so blood-related ties. People really wanted to form community. And it turns out that that's really how Humans are kind of, from an evolutionary anthropological point of view, we're really cooperative breeders and we really are social animals and we do really thrive in greater lateral networks of care and emotional support. And so the thing that I really, that I just found so fascinating when I was doing this research 
was that in all sorts of different cultural contexts and in all sorts of different historical epochs, utopian dreamers, what I like to call the utopian 1%, they've been out there on the margins of our societies living in a very different way than most of us live, especially here in the West. And they have kind of all settled upon a really interesting package of ways of being in the world, ways of being with their immediate sort of comrades or colleagues or friends, which their their families are non-consanguineous. And they do things like raise their children, you know, with more allo parents, other loving adults who are providing care and emotional support, both for the parents and for the children. And they're living more communally, not necessarily just, you know, the extreme here would be the kind of intentional community slash commune that we think of, but also things like co-housing and co-living. And so I think there are ways in which many of the challenges that we are facing in the 21st century, and very specifically here, things like gross inequality and discrimination the pandemic of loneliness and isolation and despair that is afflicting many people in this country, as well as the climate crises, all of these things can be dealt with by rearranging the way we organize our private lives. And I think a lot of people don't realize that the way we live, who we live with, and how we share our attention and our affection and our emotions, those things are profoundly political and can make a real difference to whether we survive and thrive in the coming decades. Well, I think here's a comment from Noelle on Discord. And Noelle writes, I first lived in student co-ops in Berkeley, and those opened me up to the worldwide cooperative movement and its alternative economy. Another housing utopia for me would be if all nursing homes were reimagined as small cottages for the residents, which are more homey and comfortable than the current hospital-style nursing home. I think Noelle is sort of underscoring some of the things you were saying, and I'm also struck by the use of the term opened me up two things, which I think is also what you're saying is is an important piece of looking at what is the subtitle of your book, 2,000 Years of Wild Experiments and what they can teach us about the good life. We are coming up on a break, but let me remind listeners that we're talking with Kristen R. Godsey of the University of Pennsylvania, author of Everyday Utopia. And you can join this conversation with your thoughts about what utopia is or what it means to you or experiments that you've tried. Maybe you have questions about how to get out of doomsday thinking and how to think more utopically. Join us with those after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the benefits of using utopian thinking in our daily lives and communities with Kristen Godsey, chair and professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania, who's just written the book Everyday Utopia, What 2,000 Years of Wild Experiments Can Teach Us About the Good Life. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786, at our social channels at KQED Forum, or by emailing forum at kqed.org. Julia in Berkeley is on the line. Julia. You're on. Hi, Mina. I'm really delighted to get to talk with you. This is a subject close to my heart. I have been a seeker after utopia my whole life. I did my undergraduate thesis on American utopias and utopian seeking. And I am now an Episcopal priest. So I am the pastor of a congregation, always kind of leaning into Uh, the already and not yet of God's kingdom. So I've got all that surrounding me, but in the midst of it, I spent 20 years living in a co-housing community, um, a voluntary community of people living in close proximity and sharing meals together. And I loved it, and it was really hard. And it, uh, in many ways, brought home the lessons I'd learned when I was studying utopian communities, which is Communities that set themselves apart have run the risk always of becoming rigid. And, um, and I experienced some of that as well as the, you know, great love and kindness and generosity. Um, I raised my kids there. Um, I don't think my kids would live in a co-housing community now, but they are incredibly communally oriented people. And now I live in a multi-generational household in Berkeley uh, with my adult kids who were raised in co-housing. So that's my story. <laughs> oh, well, Julia, thank you for sharing that story. And Chris, and I'd love to get your thoughts on what Julia just shared about both the benefits and also, interestingly, some of the dangers or the rigidity that can arise as well. Yeah, you know, I want to say that I also lived in a cooperative house in Berkeley when I was in graduate school there. So I think Berkeley is a sort of wonderful kind of experimental place for a lot of these ideas. But I will I will acknowledge, right, that community takes work, just like family takes work. I mean, there's this wonderful trope about Thanksgiving dinners in the United States, right, where you're kind of crazy uncle shows up and mouths off because he drank too much and there's political disagreements and all sorts of things. And I think that utopian communities, the ones that have lasted places like Twin Oaks in rural Virginia or Tamara in southern Portugal, communities that have been bound together by a certain set of ideas. And and we can include here not only secular communities, but I think it's really important to mention that Julia was an Episcopal priest Mm -hmm. and that Many utopian communities often start out as religious communities, and that is really important. If we think about a lot of the early history of utopian thinking, pre-325 Christianity is a very utopian project, Um, and they were very persecuted because of their ideas. Early Buddhism was also a very utopian project. And so what happens, I think, is that it's hard to stay dynamic and utopian when you face so much mainstream opposition to what you're doing. And many of the utopian communities that I studied in the book 
by far and away, not all of them, but quite a few of them faced a lot of persecution, especially the religious sort of Christian um, sects or groups that were critical of the Catholic Church, like the Bogomils or the Cathars or the Albigensians or the Begin nuns. So it's very difficult to deal with mainstream resistance. And what that often means is that there can be this rigidity that begins to develop. I think it's really important to recognize that a lot of people, when they hear the word utopian communities, they immediately come to think of cults. Mm-hmm. and that cults are dangerous, right? And the, there's a really important lesson in that, which is that, you know, a lot of cults have a kind of charismatic leader and that charismatic leader starts to make rules and everybody has to follow those rules. And that can go really bad really fast. And so I'm not talking about cults. I'm actually talking about people who come together and are flexible and open-minded and they are able to not become rigid to be to remain pliable and flexible and i do think it's really interesting that julia said that her children might not live in co-housing but they're really happy living in an intergenerational household with their mom and they're very communal so i think there's a spectrum right there's the full intentional community where people live together and own all of their property in common and then there are things like co-living things like co-living and co-housing and you know senior co-living and co-housing and women's co-living and co-housing in places like england a lot of older women and in paris there's a very famous example of a community called the Maison de Babayagas, where a group of older women have come together and they just live together and support each other as a family. So I think we have to think creatively and not just limit ourselves to thinking about the commune, um, particularly in the United States, where communes have such a negative connotation. Well, this is writes, Utopia for me is living in a, in a semi-cooperative household with a garden and pets. I know I'm wired this way. And I think most people are. We are stronger together. It is the daily interaction with others that brings true closeness. And I think all schools should teach compassionate communication. Well, I want to bring another person into the conversation, William Paris, assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Toronto and author of the forthcoming book, Racial Justice and Forms of Life Towards a Critical Theory of Utopia. William, thanks so much for coming on Forum. Yes, I'm happy to be here. So we're hearing lots of different um, descriptions of what utopia means to people. And I'm just curious what it means to you, how you think about it. So I actually think of utopia a lot in terms of time. I think of utopia as you know, um, something that expands our expectations for how we could live and organize our time. But it does this by challenging our pre-existing habits, our pre-existing biases, and our pre-existing assumptions of how life can be. And so what's very strange for me for utopia is it's not quite an experience. It's not a path past experience. It is uh, the challenge against our past experience, forcing us to rethink whether what we have been doing actually works and whether there might be more out there. And so for me, utopia allows us to see that our form of life, uh, how we've um, arranged our social life may actually be contingent or at least ask what is necessary in this life and what is not. I was struck by your description that utopia is most fruitfully estrangement. What did you mean by that? 
Well, you know, I think there are some people who, and you know, this sort of anti-utopians, who um, think that, you know, utopia is primarily about, you know, um, these people drawing these really detailed blueprints of how life could be, but they're disconnected from actual social life. They're not realist. And I tend to think that oh, they're missing what's so productive, even literary utopias, but also social experiments, which is that they render how we live, you know, uh, um, strange to us. It renders how we live, you know, something that we don't only take for granted. And so this moment of estrangement allows us to critically evaluate, wait, why have we been organizing our society, say, around, you know, carceral violence? Or why have we been organizing our society so much around work rather than free time? And so what it should do is actually defamiliarize ourselves with the present. And I think in that moment, that opens us up to, you know, engage in futural action. So what are sort of past utopian projects that have been inspiring to your or that have been informing your work? Yeah, so um, I actually have have two examples, and you know these examples. What's important about looking at these past projects, and I think you, um, uh, Professor Godsey, would agree with this, is not to say that we should imitate the past exactly, but you know I'm always inspired by moments of incredible creativity of people trying to determine for themselves how they are going to live, and one place that I look at is actually experiments with Black nationalism in the late 19th to 20th century. Now, one could look at Black nationalism and say, you know, that's not very feasible or it's exclusionary. But when you read it in the context of an incredibly racist polity, what these people are saying is you will are going to try to refuse us any notion of citizenship, but we need not ad adhere to your norms. We are going to develop modes of living where citizenship is a genuine ideal but not just an ideal, an actual practice. And so what you see is these people learning how to not only think for themselves, but organize themselves and seeing themselves as not necessarily having to follow along with what other people say that they are. And my second um, example is you know, um, the the writings and experiences of the Black Power movement in the 1960s and 1970s. And what you have there, specifically with someone I hope your listeners you know will will look into after this, is you know someone like James Boggs saying that you know part of the point of Black Power is to say that we don't need to necessarily integrate into the United States as if that is the horizon of freedom. What if we started thinking about how we can develop develop a type of social life where, say, work isn't the thing that dominates most of our time. And starting to think about whether work is this, you know, kind of natural constraint on our lives or if it's imposed upon us. And so you have these two experiences in African-American politics where they try to change, you know, not just their understanding of themselves as subjects, but even try to change how the society envisions how it's organized and wonder if we need to let go of some of our past habits and open ourselves up to a genuinely new future. So Kristen was talking about how she saw examples of sort of how 1% of the globe is living um, mm. with regard to an example of something that we could learn from or emulate with regard to reimagining the domestic sphere. What's the closest mm so far that you feel like you've come to seeing sort of your utopia um, 
it sounds mm. like against a, a exploitative racist system like come mm. to life. I will say, you know, and I think, you know, perhaps many people have this experience, but, you know, the George Floyd uprising in 2020, it was this, you know, moment where I thought there couldn't be no turning back. And obviously, we see with hindsight that, you know, the world didn't completely change, but I had never experienced a movement that was so um, racially differentiated, socially differentiated, and spilling across national borders, all in the name not just the you know the justice for one person George Floyd but you know condemning the injustice of a global system a global you know series of patterns and in that I should be clear about what I saw what I thought what I hoped I was seeing was you know a type of creative collaboration amongst people who hadn't previously known themselves now we might look at that and say well it ended in failure that's what most people say about utopias they end in failure but there was a moment where you saw a glimpse of what you know, um, a different future might look like, and I tend to think that those types of utopian experiences or experiments in the public sphere, even when they seem to fail, they don't actually fade away either. Mm -hmm. They reconfigure our expectations, they reconfigure our experiences, and now that is a touchstone for a new generation of people to think through of you know, what you. Know, social cooperation could look like, what our expectations of life should be. And we don't know how that's going to hook into people who come after us when they look back at that experience. Well, the listener writes, utopia is an expression of collective mental health. Therefore, utopian civilization will prioritize mental health and all blessings will follow. Let me go to caller Michael in Boston. Hi, Michael. Join us. Hi. Uh, first, I'd like to mention that when I hear someone with an amazing inventive new plan for money, making money, I don't think they're a genius. I think they're a confidence trickster. Um, <laughs> my favorite literary utopia is Ian M. Banks' story uh, of civilization called The Culture. Um, Michael, I think we're getting a lot of wind in the back of your line, but I think I heard you say Ian M. Banks' science fiction novel, The Culture series. Are you familiar with that, Kristen? Yes. And what I'm struck by is it's a sci-fi series and so much of where at least it sounded like you got your inspiration or formative experience with regard to your interest at Utopia was from sci-fi, like films like Star Wars. Star and Star Trek. And Star <laughs> Trek, Especially too. Star Trek, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I think that, um, you know, all books emerge from weird places in your brain. And for, <laughs> I think that anybody who's written a book will know that sometimes you, you know, this thing comes out in the world and you look at it and you go, did I actually write that? Was that the, were those my words? Do they just come out of my brain? And I don't even know. Sometimes there's this weird, exactly what William was saying, the estrangement. And it, sometimes utopia is estrangement from society, but it's also sometimes estrangement from yourself. You think you're not capable mm -hmm. of certain things, and then you suddenly realize that you are capable of dreaming differently about the future. There's like a, a flip, a switch, sorry, that gets flipped in your head. And for me, and I think for many people, you know, Ian M. Banks or Kim Stanley Robinson, um, Octavia Butler, you know, H.G. Uh, Wells. There are a lot of literary utopias out there. Ursula Le Guin, 
there are all these wonderful literary utopias out there that force us to think creatively about what the future might look like. I, a brand new book has just come out by a guy called Nick Fuller Guggins called The Great Transition. And it's sort of about how humanity survives the climate crisis. It's a very interesting utopian vision of the future. And all of these literary utopias, as well as things like Star Wars and Star Trek, right? They allow us, they give us a kind of safe space to dream. And by the way, this goes not only back to Thomas More in 1516 and people like Tommaso Campanella, who wrote City of the Sun in 1602, but all the way back to Plato's Republic. And you might even push it further back and think about Pythagoras, because the Pythagoreans were sort of the great, great, great grand people of utopia in the Western tradition. And so being able to imagine, it's exactly what William just said, that estrangement from the way we organize our lives, that estrangement from for, from things that we take fundamentally for granted as kind of intractable aspects of our society, what these imaginative places that are created in art and literature and poetry and cinema allow us to do is kind of flex what I call in the book, our cognitive capacity for hope. And it's in the flexing of that cognitive capacity for hope that we actually gain the agency and the skills and the determination that we need to change the future. Because what, what happens and what is lost? Oh, sorry, William, you wanted to add something to that? Oh, I was just going going to add that, you know, you know, I also think it's really important to follow from what, you know, Kristen was saying that the imagination is like a muscle. And what I think is really important about utopia, even when people are trying to say that, be, you know, we need to be realistic, is that, you know, if you are too much realism, one might say, you lose that capacity to reflect upon yourself as what you could be. And so there is also an element of utopia even when I, I always put failure in scare quotes because it's unclear to me what success would mean. But you know, utopia trains us in that muscle of being able to step away from ourselves and question what it is that we are doing rather than assuming that what how our habits, our conceptions, way, the way we are living is you know, simply all that we can do. And I worry about um, a type of social life that tries to weaken our capacity to take a perspective, a stance on ourselves that, you know, questions how we live. Well, this isn't writes Aldous Huxley's novel, Island is more of a utopian vision than Brave New World, but that one isn't taught in schools to the same extent. We're talking about past utopian experience, how they can inspire future social change, but also just how thinking utopically can open us up in ways that we may not have realized that question the status quo. And we'll have more of that discussion after the break and how we can cultivate more utopian thinking in our own lives. So stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Envisioning ways the world could be better can be an antidote to despair, say proponents of utopian thinking. And we're joined by Kristen Godsey, author of Everyday Utopia, What 2,000 Years of Wild Experiments Can Teach Us About the Good Life. Kristen is professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. William Paris is also with us, assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Toronto, and author of the forthcoming book, Racial Justice and Forms of Life Towards a Critical Theory of Utopia. And also you, our listeners, are with us, telling us what utopian means to you, what comes to mind when you hear the word utopia, whether you've tried living in a utopia-inspired environment, what your questions are about Maybe how to get out of doomsday thinking, how to think utopically. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. I'd love to get your reaction to this. Logan on Discord writes, in America, I feel that we think about the term utopia and think that we need to change everything around us in order to make it perfect. There are obviously many things that need overhaul in our society. But in order to have a more utopian society, I think we need to stop chasing unattainable perfection and change our perception of the world around us to see that what we see as perfection is often an illusion. Um, I'll go to you first, William. What do you what do you think about what Logan is saying here? On the one hand, I absolutely understand that. You know, um, you know, the idea of you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, but on the other hand, what I would say is that you know, a real critical feature of utopia. You know, um, even when you go back to Thomas More, is less about the creation of a perfect society than a type of you know systematic evaluation of the imperfections of our present society. And so, while there could be a, a you know an issue of you know, waiting for a perfect society and utopian thinking, I actually think the powerful claim that utopia is making is that you know, no. We need to see how the imperfections of our current society are often um, given to us. You know, we're told that these are necessary imperfections, or maybe that these are imperfections that are to the broader good. And Utopia gives us a set of criteria, a set of um, ideas by which we can say, no, those imperfections are not to the broader good. And in fact, if we keep on this track, we might be, you know, um, led down the path of of further social degradation or devastation. And so I see in utopia not the wish for perfection, but actually the the wish for for freedom, richer social freedom. And you know, trying to contest, you know, dominant discourses that tell us that there is no possibility for richer social freedom. And so I would actually try to think of utopia not as this desire for perfection, but you know, a desire for, and this is some very strange the way that I say it, but a desire for new problems, a desire to, mm-hmm. you know, be free to discover what else we might get into rather than you know, being trapped in this, you know, um, form of life in this Mm. society. Is there anything you would add, Kristen? 
I mean, I think William did a wonderful job there of kind of channeling the same sort of utopian spirit that I would channel in in this in this case, which is that, look, there's a way in which we have to understand that many things many, many, many years ago in previous utopian experiments, and that's why I think it's so important occasionally to look at the past, even at these failed, and I, I also use the kind of scare quotes, failed utopian experiments, because first of all, it's unclear what constitutes success or failure, as William says, but also we're not trying to exonerate these communities or to just adopt what they were doing whole cloth, but we're trying to learn from what they did. And in many cases, things that were considered very utopian in the past are actually kind of normal parts of our daily lives today. So there's, for instance, this 1827 Chinese fantasy novel called Flowers in the Mirror. And in that novel, Li Ruzhen imagines a thing called the country of women and the country of sexless people. And they're really under trying to understand like gender roles, kind of trouble gender roles. And, you know, we understand nowadays that gender is performative. But this is 1827. This way predates our understanding of the flexibility of gender. And I think that 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 was a very utopian vision. It's still very much considered a utopian novel. And yet for today, in our world, we just think of these things as, yeah, we understand that, you know, gender is a spectrum or whatever, or at least many of us do. And so I do think that it's not just that utopian thinking allows us to flex that muscle, that cognitive capacity for hope, but we also need to be reminded that many of the things that we take for granted today, like the right to divorce or taking your kid and dropping them off at daycare during the day. Those were once really radical utopian demands. They don't feel like they were utopian demands because mm. they've just become so normalized. The same way that Christianity, which started out as this incredibly utopian project, eventually becomes a state religion. And now, you know, just you look at Catholicism alone, there are 1.2 billion Catholics in the world. And we think of that as a very conservative, not a very utopian force. But its its roots are in utopia. And so one thing is a standard science fiction trope is the butterfly effect. I'm not, there was an Ashton Kutcher movie called The Butterfly Effect, right? Which is if you go back in time, you know, if there's time travel technology and you, you know, step on a butterfly or kill a butterfly or something, like the entire future could be different from this one tiny action if you go back in time and you mess with the timeline. But what that means, and very few people, you know, people know what the butterfly effect is, but mm -hmm. they don't realize what the contingent application of it is today. That means that the future is contingent on every little thing that we do right now. And that's the beauty and power of utopia, because you recognize that you have agency in the present. And while I understand the discord person saying that, you know, we shouldn't only be aiming for perfection, we should just be satisfied with what we have. I actually think that's a little bit dangerous because that means that we lose the ability to dream our way into a better future. Let me go to caller Kevin in Alameda, who's on the line. Hi, Kevin. Join us. Hi, and thank you for having me. I would like to share that I just came back from my first burn. I was a burning man. Uh -huh. yep. Yeah. 
And it was 100% complete utopian experience where I was, even during the worst of it. It rained, it poured, people fled that were scared, and that was a very, very small minority. Some got stuck, and there was some rage about that. The rest of us were just sharing whatever resource we had, holding space for those who didn't, actually providing for those who needed a little bit of a boost, gathering together, and just taking part in a few days of mass discomfort. (laughs) And when it cleared up, the energy was exponentially higher. And that may be um, too abstract for some who don't allow that to be a possibility, but that's the point of the full immersion of the experience is just to allow. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it is possible. And by the way, this is my first burn, and that's a big deal. And if you saw the news and you saw the panic and you heard and you want to allow that to be your, your narrative, then that will be your narrative. For the rest of mm-hmm. us, uh, the possibilities are real. Well, I'm glad you had such an mm-hmm. experience, Kevin. Thanks yeah. thanks so much for sharing that. You know, so when we immerse ourselves in sort of attempts at utopia or utopian thinking, or when you write your book, Kristen, um, or write your forthcoming book, William, I, I'm just so curious what you have taken away from it that you have applied to your daily life. So, so Kristen, like, what is a change that you have made as a result of taking this deep dive or immersion into thinking utopically or looking at utopian experiments? So two things. First, I feel I'm a mom. I have a a young adult daughter. And I have realized, and I, I think I sort of knew this intuitively, but now I'm really doing it deliberately. I want her to have as many loving, caring adults in her life as she can possibly have. I think that that our model of the nuclear family of exclusive biparental care actually damages our children and actually damages our relationships and ourselves because we really, you know, our cooperative breeders, there's that saying, it takes a village. I do think that we would all be so much more connected and contented if we shared the responsibility more broadly of bringing up the next generation. That doesn't mean full cooperative childcare or something like that. It means that I want my daughter to have close relationships with other adults and I'm not going to be jealous of them if like they're cooler than I am or something like that. (laughs) Damages is a pretty strong statement though. Do you want to explain what you mean by damages? Like that by parental model damages? Oh, well, I just think, so we know from the pandemic, we actually have really good data now that children that were born immediately before the lockdowns in 2020 or during those early months of 2020 and then spent a good chunk of their first year or two of life with just their biological parents and not many other people, maybe a sibling or two, they're actually cognitively delayed. And, you know, this is an experiment that social scientists couldn't ethically do. Like you can't take babies and deprive them of contact in order to see what the effects are. But the pandemic provided us with what's called a natural experiment. And so when we raise our children in this very narrow way of exclusive bi- 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 parental care, which is what many of us do, or 
you know, this can even go to the extreme where let's say you have a kind of a classic sort of breadwinner homemaker model where you have like a trad wife who's home all the time with her biological children and the children don't, you know, maybe interact a little bit with their father, but mostly just interact with their mom. That's actually not an ideal circumstance for those children. So when I say damage, I literally mean like cognitively delay, but also, I mean, and this is true if anybody out there has had teenagers, you will know that teenagers demand a lot of emotional attention and care, and they can be very challenging. And you need other adults in your life to not only support the teenager, but also to support you in your relationships with that teenager. And so we have these things in many traditional societies and historically, there are grandparents, there are aunts and uncles and cousins. In some religious traditions, there are godparents. You know, we have this concept of alloparents today in the United States. We have step-parents. We also have, you know, a kind of fictive kin, like aunts and uncles that are like your dad's college buddies or, you know, your mom's friends from church or whatever. And so I really do think that we 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 double down on a model of the family that is really ill-suited to the challenges of the 21st century. And then the only other thing that I'll say that I cha- really changed in my life is I am one of those people, like every other American, who often chooses convenience over community. If I can have my groceries delivered, if I can, you know, get my Taylor Swift tickets online, uh, rather than having to actually physically go wait in a line, not that I, not that I did that, but my daughter did, um, I will do that. It's so easy to choose the convenience. And one of the things that I think I really learned from studying all these utopian experiments is that Sometimes inconvenience, and I think that the caller who just talked about Burning Man is a perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. Shared inconvenience really brings people together in a profound and lasting way. And and so for me, I want to go and wait in line at the grocery store and chat with the clerk and chat with the people in line in front of me and behind me because I think that that's really important for building the kinds of lateral networks, again, what social psychologists will often call weak ties that really allow us to thrive in our communities and societies in the future. Well, let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. William, what about for you in terms of the way that it has changed, maybe in small ways or big, the the way that you live in the world, this immersion into thinking about utopian projects and about how mm-hmm. we live utopically. Yeah. So I, I, this, this gives me a chance to say a bit about what I think is a really core feature of utopia, you know, that, you know, the, the sort of um, estranging and reflexive aspect of it, which is also the project of even thinking about utopias is, you know, almost constitutionally also a project about thinking about how we spend our time how we share our time. In fact, you know, one of the, the 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 critiques of utopia is, you know, this idea of like, you know, who has time to, you know, to dream of better worlds, to dream of a radically new social existence. And what's so important about utopia is, wait a second, the one thing that I have a finite amount of in this world is time. And the, the one of the sort of the promises of happiness in utopia is, 
maybe I'll get to share and value my time differently. And so one thing I try to do in my teaching is I've noticed, especially since the pandemic, so many of my students, you know, despair and cynicism seem to be the, the, the reflexive way they approach the world. They don't, you know, really have a sense that things are going to get better. They, mm -hmm. you know, don't have a sense that, you know, it's almost, you know, even worth really thinking about what a radically different type of life is. And something I try to say to them is, no, in this classroom, this is a different space of time. You can take the time to think about what you'd like for your life, what you'd like for other people in your life. And you don't, you need, you can let go as well as possible all the other constraints and demands on your time that, you know, life inevitably places upon us. And I hope that, you know, in that experience of sharing time together, but sharing time in a way that feels kind of free. That is one aspect I've really drawn from engaging utopic thinking, which is we do have time to engage in utopic thinking. In fact, you know, we are so much the worse if we think we don't have time for it. And the other thing I really you know, get from this to follow along that thread of time is I become really conscious on how I, I spend my time now. Yeah. You know, as a professor, there's always another committee to be on. There's always another article to write. And obviously there's class prep, et cetera. And I really try to value the time that I use, you know, what is it that, you know, gives me joy, inspiration, even though obviously I live in an imperfect world, there are things I'm going to have to do that I, I, I don't like doing, but really saying, you know what? No, I want to start to carve out spaces of freedom for myself. And then I start thinking about, well, what could the conditions be like where other people could carve out spaces of freedom to spend and share their time? And that brings me an immense type of joy because this might sound surprising, but it's because I start to understand the world better, even when I understand that it's not yet possible for us to have really robust free time where we can cultivate ourselves and our relationships with others. Yeah. Well, this listener, Christina, writes, utopian thinking seems an antidote for the hopeless hopelessness of that is epidemic, especially among younger people, which can render us without agency, creativity, or joy, that which we most need. And it reminds me a little bit, William, of your thoughts about what we lose when we lose our sense of a better future, that we can lose a real desire to work together in the present. And, uh, and it really sounds like <laughs> the future is really something worth working together for. So William, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. William Paris, Assistant Professor of the Department of Philosophy at the University of Toronto. Kristen Godsey, Professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your visions of utopia. Thank you, Caroline Smith, for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.